Good morning, church. It's a pleasure to be with you all here this morning, and um, it's a pleasure to get to stand up here and, and share with you all what I feel the Lord has put on my heart. Um, as I was sitting back there, and we've just been been going through this service thus far, um, I can't help but think and wish that you all already knew what it is that I'm wanting to share with you this morning. And the reason for that is because it is amazing to see in all the little aspects and nuances of what we've done this morning between singing worship songs, uh, Israel coming up and sharing for our missions moment, the need to pray for the missionaries over in India, uh, Bob and his scripture reading, and Ecclesiastes, our pastoral prayer time, all of those contain aspects and elements that the Lord has put on my heart to share with you this morning, as well as hearken back to what we've heard from our pastors these past several weeks in our May month of missions. And I think just because of me having spent the time that I did seeking to put together this message and um, summarize the messages that we've heard from uh, Doug and Eric and Tom and Jim, uh, it's, it's, it's fresh in my mind what they've spoken on. And so I'm able to, to glean all of these aspects that the Lord has used this morning, um, causing me to remember, and I hope some of you to remember what it is that they've shared with us in God's word. And so it's just me, basically in a nutshell, to see God's sovereignty unto all things, always and forever. And this morning is a perfect example of that. So if you all with me will join me in a word of prayer before we delve into this, I would appreciate that. God, I thank you for what a privilege it is to stand up here this morning and to simply be a vessel to communicate what you've written in your word, Lord. I honestly believe that if all of the, uh, the extra stuff that I attempt to share this morning falls on deaf ears, simply the reading of your word is powerful enough to uh, turn hearts unto yourself, Lord. And so I pray that the verses that we read this morning, as well as what I believe that you have shown me and I wish to expound on, Lord, would touch and resonate with uh, our church's heart, Lord, anybody that may be listening remotely, ultimately that you would use this time this morning, that you would use me, that you will have used our pastors to simply proclaim the truths that you seek to speak and teach to us. We thank you for your graciousness in our lives and the graciousness that you continue to pour out on the lives of those who have yet to call upon your name and turn to you in saving faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, as I mentioned, this is May month of missions, and I've been given the, the task of trying to summarize uh, and find the, the unifying theme of all of the messages that have been shared with us so far. So when we think of May month of missions, um, we're obviously focused on missions. Uh, our church is obviously very passionate about missions. Uh, I would say in large part to Jim Womble and the burden that the Lord has placed on his heart but as well as each of our pastors, members within our congregation, um, I think it's a pretty unique thing for a church to be so inclined towards missions. It is certainly a gift for a church and for its members to be so inclined towards missions. I would be willing to bet in large part most churches, uh, missions is, is somewhat of an afterthought. It's something that 
I think all Christians are mindful of, aware of in a sense, but is it really central to who they are and what they do? Is spreading the gospel and equipping people to spread the gospels central to a church? And it certainly is with Everglades. And so I want to pose a question to you all. When we think of May month of missions, I think it's a a very natural question to come to mind. What is the purpose and goal of missions? should ask yourself. I mean, can you provide an answer right off the bat? Or are we kind of left with, well, I don't really know. We've been going through May month of missions and focusing on missions and various needs and aspects of missions that our our pastors have drawn out for us. But can we really answer the very simple question, what is the purpose and goal of missions? As I asked myself this question, I was able to find through the help of my wife and what the Lord has uh, inclined her heart towards, uh, a quote from John Piper that I thought was very helpful that I'd like to share with you all this morning. So John Piper says in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, the goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. Let me repeat that because the the phrasing is a little unique. The goal of missions, according to John Piper, is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. Well, what does that mean? What does that sound like? I think if we slow down and think about it, I would describe it as worship. John Piper goes on to describe it as worship. He continues to say, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their face before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It is the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. For those of you who are familiar with John Piper and his uh, preaching and writing, uh, I think that last sentence is is very Piper-esque. The white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. But it's... uh, I think it's an apt analogy. It's apt describing the glory of God. If you think of something that's been refined in a furnace, iron, they heat it to such an extent that it's white hot. Nobody would touch it, but the heat just exudes from it, similar to the glory of God. And so Piper is drawing out for us that missions must be rooted in worship. The purpose and goal of missions is to create more worshipers. It's that simple. The purpose and goal of missions is to create more worshipers. And what do we know about worship? Some scriptures may come to mind, specifically the one that came to mind for me, since we've just been learning it with my children going over the catechism, is John 4, 24. And it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So we as worshipers and those that we seek to lead into the worship of God through missions must worship in spirit and truth. Well, what is spirit? What is truth? What is in this verse in John 4, 24, what does he mean by spirit and truth? Well, spirit means that our worship needs to well up from within. It's our spirit that's being referred to. It's not necessarily the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that will prompt it, but it's not as the charismatic movement would probably try and say that spirit is to be slain in the spirit and speaking in tongues. That's a misinterpretation of theirs. The author in this context is referring to our spirit. It needs to well up from our spirit. 
And it implies being rooted in a proper heart attitude towards God, not mere outward conformity. So our worship needs to well up from within us. It needs to come from our spirit, from our uttermost being, is where our worship for God needs to be rooted from. It's not simply conforming. It's not just singing the song. It's not clapping your hands. It's not obeying all the rules that the church lays out. It needs to be something that comes from within. But it's not simply... We need to worship in spirit. We need to worship in spirit and truth. Well, what is truth? Truth refers to God's word. It needs to be consistent with what has been revealed in scripture and centered on God. So therefore, our worship, therefore, missions must be rooted in a worship that naturally wells up from the heart. Because of the truth we know about our God, that he has revealed to us through his word. So we and those that come to Christ through missions must know God and his word. Missions, worship must be centered on God and his word. And when it is rightly centered on God and his word, it will naturally well up from within our hearts. We will be able to rightly worship. We will rightly be able to do missions in spirit and truth. So I'm going to seek to provide you all with a summary couple of sentences of the message that I plan on sharing with you this morning. The message that I feel the Lord has laid on my heart, I'm going to go ahead and give it all to you in these couple of sentences. So missions is an act of worship and a means of leading others to worship the God who created them in his image. And this worship, and therefore missions, must be rooted in a proper heart attitude that flows from what God has revealed to us in Scripture. Let me read that, read that again. Missions is an act of worship and therefore a means of leading others to worship the God who created them in his image. And this worship and therefore missions must be rooted in a proper heart attitude that flows from what God has revealed to us in scripture. Missions must be done in spirit and truth. Missions done outside of that heart-centered, God-centered Spirit-led attitude is a mission that ultimately is going to fall on deaf ears. It's going to return void because it's not centered in God and his character. It's not centered in God and his word. It's rooted in self. Missions must be centered and done in a worshipful attitude that is centered on spirit and truth. So with that lens, that missions and worship go hand in hand. Let's briefly revisit what the pastors have taught us these last few weeks. So I'm going to backtrack and go over what each of our pastors has shared with us, and then I'll attempt to build out from there this overarching theme of worship being centered in spirit and truth and what that looks like for us, how we can practically work and walk that out personally and as we seek to engage missions. So Tom, in sharing on Deuteronomy 6, really highlighted for us that we need to love God and we need to love his word, as well as that discipleship and mission starts in the home. And this can really be summarized in some of the verses that he shared with us, uh, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7. I'm going to go ahead and read that to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, sorry, I lost my place, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So in summary, we need to love God. We need to love others. 
We need to love God and we need to teach our children to love God. Missions and discipleship starts in the home and all of it is rooted in the need to love God. Tom tactfully taught us we need to love God. Eric taught us that we need to love others and die to self through the example of Jesus and washing his disciples' feet in John 13. I feel that the message that he really delivered to us is summarized in some of the verses that are in that chapter, verses 14 through 16. Let me read those to you as well. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus, in this example, Jesus communicating is not saying we literally need to wash each other's feet, though some of us may need to wash our feet. Jesus is ultimately telling us that we need to love others as Christ loved others. We need to love others as he loved others in humility. As you remember, Eric taught us that the, the act of foot washing was reserved for the lowliest of servants. And so for Jesus, God of God, Lord of Lords, to humble himself and washing his disciples' feet was a profound act of humility and set an example for how we are to love and serve brothers and sisters in Christ, how we are to love and serve uh, our fellow men and women that are created in the image of God. We need to serve out of humility. We need to love others. Doug focused on a series of passages in Genesis 1 and 2, Nehemiah 4, and Corinthians 12, where he was really able to draw out for us, we need to use our gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given us to advance the gospel and for his glory. To do missions, we need to use our gifts, talents, and abilities, and that God always equips us for the mission that he has called us to. I'm not going to attempt to, to, to reference any verses specifically because Doug used a lot of different passages, and I don't have time to try and summarize all of it, so I hope that you took good notes. But in summary, he was really able to deliver to us that God gives us gifts, talents, and abilities, and those gifts, talents, and our abilities are used to serve others and to use in the mission that God has called us to. Jim focused us on 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he was able to highlight what disqualified Israel from entering into the promised land that God had said that he would lead them into. And he paralleled this, how it serves as warnings for us, as well as highlighted the need that we need to exercise humility. Really, this is summarized, verses 7 through 10 in 1 Corinthians, uh, the disqualifications, the warnings that were given were, do not be idolaters, do not be sexually immoral, do not test the Lord, do not be grumblers. So that was pertinent. Those were warnings that were given to Israel, and they failed to heed those warnings, and therefore many, many, many of them fell and died in the wilderness. They did not enter the promised land that God said that he would give to them and to their children. We need to be mindful of those warnings today. They are equally pertinent to us. And in verses 11 through 13, he reminded us that we need to stay humble and be aware of our blind spots, that anyone can fall. Do not be prideful, or else we will succumb to those disqualifications. We will stumble, and we will be like the Israelites and fall in the wilderness. In summary, we need to watch out for the disqualifiers and stay humble. So given what we have been taught thus far, we can say, in summary, that we need to love God. We need to love others. We need to honor God with our gifts, our talents, and our abilities. And we need to consider the warnings 
the sinful heart attitudes that could disqualify us. If we are going to do missions, these aspects that our pastors have drawn out for us are absolutely essential. We need to love God. We need to love others. We need to use the gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given us to love God and to love others, not for selfish, sinful gain. And we need to be weary. We need to be watchful of what could disqualify us, of the stumbling blocks, of the hazards that lay out there, the sinful heart attitudes that each one of us is prone to give into. So how do we do this? How do we do this in a manner that is pleasing to God, that is worshipful? Through knowing his word. We need to know the Bible. Missions is only possible, is only done rightly, if done with a heart attitude and an outward action that is rooted in God and his word. We can only love God, love others, honor God with our gifts, talents, and abilities, and watch out for the disqualifiers by spending time in our Bibles. Missions, and therefore worship, must be rooted in the Word of God. God has given us everything necessary to live a life that is pleasing to Him, to live a life that is worshipful, to live a life that honors and serves others, to live a life in which we can use the many gifts that God has given us to express our worship towards him, to express our worship towards others, and to avoid the stumbling blocks that are out there. And how has God given that to us? Through his word. We need to know our Bibles. We need to be spending time in our Bibles. We don't have to have every verse memorized, as great as that would be, but we need to be spending time daily in our Bibles and allowing the Spirit to bring up and prompt in us what we've read in our Bibles so we can rightly live our lives and love and serve others. I would like for us to look at Romans chapter 10, 14 through 17, and I'll try to illustrate this point further in these verses. So if you will go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, 14 through 17, we'll focus the next portion of our time on these verses. All right, it looks like pages have stopped turning, so I'm going to go ahead and read. I'm reading from the ESV translation, by the way. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed. They have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I, I honestly feel like I could just stop now. Those verses are just such an excellent summary of the purpose and goal of missions. The, the manner in which missions happens, the process of leading up to a person being sent out for missions and what must take place during missions. God has revealed in, in, in Romans 10, 14 through 17, really all that we need to know. However, I will take the time because I prepared to try and, and, and draw that out a little bit for us. But I just really fell in love with these verses when thinking of May month of missions. Boom, here it is. Romans 10, 14 through 17. That really summarizes what our pastors have really been trying to draw out for us. So in verses 14 and 15, Paul is presenting the fact that a clear presentation of the gospel is absolutely necessary and precedes faith. 
an unclear presentation of the gospel leads professing believers into idolatry because they're not placing their faith in the one true God. The gospel must be presented clearly for a person to put their faith and trust in the true God and in the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. If you really think about it, if someone is presented with a false gospel and they they claim to place their faith in that gospel that's been presented to them, if it's not the true gospel, their faith has not been placed in the true God. Their faith has been placed in a false God and an idol. And so therefore, anybody seeking to engage missions must present the gospel in its entirety and clearly. We all must know the gospel in its entirety and know it clearly. To paraphrase these, these verses, to paraphrase Romans 10, 14 through 17, people are lost and do not know to call upon God because they have not heard the good news. Therefore, someone must go and preach the good news to them. Therefore, someone must send that person or persons to preach the good news. We all are called to preach and to send. Some may have a stronger emphasis on preaching or, or the going, where others may have a stronger emphasis or burden on on the sending, but uh, both are necessary when it comes to missions, and every single believer is called to fulfill both. We are called to fulfill the preaching, the proclaiming, the going, as well as equipping others to go, the sending. The word preaching at the end of verse 14 just, just to clarify, because oftentimes when we hear the word preaching, we think of what I'm doing. We think of what Doug and Eric and Tom and Jim are doing. But, but just to clarify, uh, Romans 10, 14 through 17 is not referring to Doug, Eric, Tom, and Jim. It's referring to everybody here. So the Greek word is caruso, which means to preach, to proclaim, to be a heralder, a public crier of divine truth, especially when it comes to the gospel. So that word preaching, that word preach, is referring to simply proclaiming the gospel, publicly proclaiming the gospel. I hope that all of us know our Bibles enough, and if not, please take my word and then spend time in the Bible and and find out for yourself. That's what every believer is called to do, to proclaim the gospel. Therefore, All of us are called to missions. All of us are called to preach and teach and share the gospel in differing capacities, differing scenarios, but nobody is exempt from it. So this call in Romans 10, 14 is not restricted to the preacher. We are all called to be a public crier of the gospel. We are all called to preach, teach, and participate in missions. Paul goes on to quote, Isaiah 52, verse 7 and verse 15, where he says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What makes the feet of those that preach the good news so beautiful is the good news that they carry. This is essentially a summary of missionaries. Here in this verse in Isaiah, it's saying that the feet of those that carry the good news are considered beautiful in the eyes of God. It's a worshipful act. Therefore, when we preach, teach, and share the gospel, it is an act of worship unto God. When we engage missions, when we frame it in that right context of preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel, it's not simply going like Greg and Kilby over to Africa, as great and as necessary that is, 
or is Israel a drought for all the missionaries that are now in India or those seeking to go to India? They are engaging in missions, but we are engaging in missions. We should be engaging in missions. And so when we do that, it is an act of worship unto God. Verse 16 picks up saying, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. I think it's interesting that it, it doesn't say they all haven't listened to the gospel or they all haven't heard the gospel, but st- specifically the word that's used there is they have not obeyed the gospel. Well, what, is, what does that mean? How do we obey the gospel? Well, the gospel command is to what? To believe and repent. So they have not all believed and repented. Those who refuse to do so, those who refuse to believe and repent is because they have been enticed by the world. They've been enticed by a false gospel, by false teaching. They have succumbed and given into the disqualifications that Jim highlighted for us a few weeks ago. They have remained idol worshipers. When I was thinking about it, I I was tempted to say they became idol worshipers. Those who refused to, to believe and repent became idol worshipers. But the reality is, We all are idol worshipers before we come to saving faith in Christ. If you don't believe in the one true God, you believe in an idol. Nobody's exempt from that. Everybody places their faith and trust in something. And if it's not the God revealed to us through scripture, it's an idol. It's a false God. Nobody is exempt from that. I can't make that any more clear. I think all too often we can think of the the Muslim. We can think of... Um, in some instances, the, the Jehovah's Witness, we can think of um, the Buddhist as, as worshiping a false god, but so are the atheists, so are the agnostic. So is anybody who does not have their faith and trust placed in the one true God, they worship idols. This is why missions is so necessary. To open the eyes of the blind... All have not obeyed, so we need to remind them over and over and over again until they do so. When I was thinking about this, it brought to mind I have four young children, as many of you probably know. And if you tell a young child to do something, you seek to teach them truth, but they disobey or they forget, do you, do you give up? Do you just write them off and move on? No. You are to be persistent until they get it. Parents are persistent until your children learn the truth that you're trying to teach them. When it comes to missions, whether at home or abroad, we must be persistent until they get it. Until God decides to overcome their hard hearts and allow them to get it. There are some here today sitting among us that still need to get it. I pray that today would be the day that God opens your heart. He opens your ears and softens your heart to understand that Jesus Christ, God of very God, came in the flesh and suffered the wrath that was due unto you and died in your place so that way you could be made right before God. You need to believe and repent. You need to hear the gospel call. Quit hardening your heart. I pray that today is the day that God allows you to get it to hear the gospel call, and to obey its command, to believe, and to repent. Going back to our our passage in Romans 10, on verse 17, it says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Ultimately, faith comes through the genuine preaching and teaching of the gospel, and 
by God enabling our hearts to accept his truths. God is the one who enables us to worship in spirit and truth. God is the one who enables us to do missions and produce more worshipers of God. So it's not all of the the giftedness. It's not our own gifts, talents, and abilities that we have. But it's God, as Doug drew out, who enables us with those gifts, talents, and abilities and blesses them to bear fruit to allow other people to hear the gospel call that we must be obedient to preach and teach. All of it is God acting upon us and acting upon others to hear it. God is the one that blesses and prospers missions. So I think it's helpful to ask, how many times did you sit through a sermon before you were actually converted? All of us are going to have different answers. Some of us, it very well may have been the first time that we were in church and heard the gospel message presented clearly. Others, it was maybe a hundred times, maybe more. There's probably some here that still, though they have heard the faithful preaching and teaching of the gospel, still remain unrepentant. They still have to yet to, to, to believe in it, to actually hear the message they've heard it but have they heard it are they truly listening and god is the one that will move on that heart but we also have the responsibility to cry out to god to ask him god please incline my heart to hear to understand there should be a frustration that wells up in us if we've heard the gospel and we're still not getting it we need to pray that god would incline our hearts to get it to love him and to obey him a missionary could really be likened to, as we've, we've been going through in Family Connect, we've been going through Pilgrim's Progress. And so what came to mind is whenever um, Pilgrim and Faithful are traveling through the town of Vanity Fair and the people of that town are, are trying to sell them all the world's goods, and, and how do they, they respond? They respond, we buy truth is they refused to buy what the world was trying to sell them and, and stayed steadfast in saying, we will only buy truth. However, the missionary's cry must be, we sell truth, we give truth, we come bringing truth as they seek to be sent to the town of Vanity Fair, the places in the world where people are lost and dying and all that the world promises to offer them. We as believers, we as individuals that seek to engage missions need to be going to those places where people are lost and dying and we need to let them know we sell truth we come bringing you truth so once we know our bibles we are able to stand for and proclaim truth that is revealed in it isn't this how missions manifest itself through the going and speaking preaching and teaching of the word of god in the midst of opposition differing opinions and other beliefs To do missions well, we need to know our Bibles. To put it another way, we need to know theology. Whenever I I say we need to know theology, I think oftentimes uh, for individuals that hear the word theology, it's either, well, what does that mean? Or we think of um, the scholar. We think of a a pastor. We think of a preacher um, when we think of the word theology. But as I was trying to research this, I was actually able to find an article that was written by the the dean and uh, the academic professor of theology at Reformation Bible College. And I, I paraphrased the quote that he said is this. At its most basic level, theology is the study of God. It is not a dispassionate exercise. 
A proper knowledge of theology is essential for a right understanding of who God is and for a right understanding of who we as creatures made in his image are. It is essential for understanding God. It is essential for understanding ourselves. Dr. R.C. Sproul, when speaking on theology, puts it this way. Everyone is a theologian. This is because any time we think about a teaching of the Bible and strive to understand it, we are engaging in theology. Whenever we're reading scripture and we think to understand theology or what scripture is teaching us, we're engaging in theology. Therefore, we're a theologian. Just like missions, it's not restricted to the pastor or preacher. It's not restricted to the man behind the pulpit. It's not restricted to the person that's overseas doing missions. Everybody here is a theologian. Actually, everybody in the world is technically a theologian because everybody in the world has an opinion and a belief about God. Most of them are wrong, but we're still theologians. Nobody's exempt from it. Somebody can't say, give me the Bible. I don't need theology. Give me Jesus. I don't need the Bible. I don't need theology. No, no, no. You can't know Jesus. You can't know God apart from knowing theology. And whether you like it or not, you know theology. It just may be wrong theology. So I, I want to, to build that out with that right context of what theology is. I don't want it to be thought of as a dispassionate exercise. It should actually be something we're all very passionate about, to know the God that created us that results in us knowing ourselves better. These quotes rightly help us think about theology and how we as believers are called to engage it. We should wrestle with Scripture and seek to understand what God is revealing to us. This will enable us to do missions well. We don't do missions in a vacuum. We don't do missions for no reason. The reasons we need to do missions is because people have false beliefs. They have a false theology. They have succumbed to the false teaching and the deceitfulness of their own sinful hearts. They worship themselves and not the God who created them. The work of the missionary is to reorient them to God, and this is done by proclaiming truth. This is done by as Jude will say, contending for the faith. In his letter to fellow believers, Jude tells his listeners to contend for the faith. Due to the false teaching that was running rampant at that time, he's essentially saying, you know the truth, you know true theology, that Jesus and the apostles passed down to us. Stand for it, proclaim it. And his phrase, contending for the faith, that's essentially what he's delivering to us. In fact, that phrase and what I just shared with you, the false teachers and why there's a need for believers to contend for the faith, is really a summary of the entire book of Jude. So I'd like us to focus on a few verses in Jude. If you will turn there in your Bibles, it's actually the book right before Revelation. So if you turn to the last book in your Bible and the one right before, it's a very small letter titled Jude. Um, that I'd like us to focus on. As much as I was wanting to have the time to actually uh, go through the entire book of Jude, um, that would take a really long time. And instead, we will focus on some, some key verses, and um, I will reread the summary that I provided just to, to form a context of the whole book as we look at these verses. So Jude tells his listeners fellow believers, to contend for the faith due to the false teaching that was running rampant at that time. He's essentially saying, you know the truth, you know true theology that Jesus and the apostles have given to us, stand for it, proclaim the truth. 
So that's a, that's kind of a summary of the whole book of Jude. I do encourage you to read it in your own time. I timed myself. It took me four minutes. So nobody has the excuse that they don't have time for it. I think we all have four minutes. All right. So I am going to read verses one through four, and we'll turn our focus there for a little while. And then the latter half, we'll shift our focus to verses 17 through 23. Let me turn there. Hang on. Okay, Jude verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So as we focus on these verses, I really want to point out something that's important in the very first verse, verse 1. Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. It's interesting to note that Jude, though the half-brother of Jesus himself, does not assign himself this title in the introduction of the book. He doesn't say Jude, the brother of Jesus. Instead, he says Jude, the slave, or in some translations, the bondservant of Jesus, and the brother of James, who is another half-brother of Jesus. Rather than pointing out that he was the brother of Jesus and taking a posture of arrogance, he assumes a posture of humility. This really parallels what Eric was drawing out for us in John as far as the need to assume a position of humility. Eric pointed out through Jesus' example in washing his disciples' feet that we are to love and serve in a posture of humility. Jude, in this introduction, is doing just that before he begins warning his audience of the danger of false teaching. He does not presume to lord his position over these believers as the brother of Jesus and share all of his profound wisdom with them and encourage them to, quote-unquote, be like a Jude, but instead he assumes a lowly position and speaks the truth and love in humility. The truth and love that he is delivering through warning about false teachers is served out of a posture of humility, not arrogance. Therefore, believers should be all the more eager to listen and obey the call that he gives to us. And unbelievers should recognize the posture of humility and, and listen to the message that he's seeking to share. This idea of humility is essential to missions. If one goes into missions with the idea of all the wisdom that they will share and all the souls they intend to convert to Christ, they will be useless. To do missions is to recognize that we're completely devoid of having anything worthwhile to contribute. As Doug pointed out, it is God that equips us with the gift, talents, and abilities to accomplish the mission that God has put before us. God is the one that opens the ears and softens the heart of those that we speak to and serve with. God is the one to incline their hearts towards himself. We offer nothing. We must be like the tax collector in Luke 18, 13 that beat his breast before God saying, God, have mercy on me for I am a lowly and wicked sinner. We are blessed to be able to participate in the means by which God wins souls to himself. To, to participate in missions at all is a blessing and a gift. We need to keep that in mind. 
Though some of us may be intimidated by it, remember God equips us with everything necessary. And so long as we spend time in our word and we know the God that's revealed himself through it, we will love God and we will serve others rightly. And we will know of the potential stumbling blocks that could get in our way. We need to serve and recognize what a privilege it is for us to share the gospel. Shifting our focus back to Jude verses 3 and 4. Jude writes this letter and tells believers to contend for the faith because of the false teachers and apostates that were preaching and living a counterfeit gospel. This counterfeit gospel that they were preaching and teaching and living out was misleading those who needed to hear the true gospel. Because of the vulnerability of new converts and even those who had yet to be converted, Jude admonishes the believers to which he is writing this letter to contend for the faith to stand up for the true gospel that had been taught by Jesus and handed down by the other apostles. Those who knew the truth needed to stand for it, not shy away from it. But brothers and sisters, isn't it as easy to find ourselves doing the opposite of that? We hear someone speaking or teaching or simply sharing a thought on something related to God or his word that we know is not correct, but we shy away from speaking the truth because we don't want to hurt their feelings, or we begin wondering, well, what if I'm wrong? And we, we, it's self-preservation. We don't want to get our feelings hurt. So we shy away rather than being bold and proclaiming and, and contending for the truth. This is the reason why we need to know our Bibles, why we need to study theology in order to know truth and to be able to stand for that truth, not back down, not doubt. When you know your Bible, when you know theology, when you're at least spending time in your Bible, the Spirit is gracious enough to provide you with this wisdom and to teach you truth. Whenever you find yourself misspeaking that you've wrongly handled a situation when the Lord reveals that to you, go in a spirit of humility and correct that to the person that you shared something incorrect about. But by and large, if we're spending time seeking to know the God who has revealed himself through his word, God will lead us so long as we're coming from a posture of humility to speak truth. When we tempt to a Lord over and and, in our arrogance share all the profound wisdom that we have and all the knowledge of scripture we have, that's oftentimes we put our foot in our mouth. But when we come in a posture of humility, God is gracious to equip us with what is necessary to share with others. Again, I'm not saying whenever I I stress the need to study our Bibles, to stress the need to study theology, I don't mean it in the sense that everybody needs to go to Bible college, that everybody needs to go to seminary. But I mean it in the sense that Dr. Schwoll meant it, that we as believers simply need to be spending time in God's word and seeking to understand the God that's revealed himself to us. And I think it's really important, too, to recognize that when we read the Bible and a question pops into our mind, we shouldn't just move on. We need to seek out an answer, whether that's going and asking your pastors, whether that's reading a book, whether that's engaging other um, trustworthy resources. We need to find an answer because more than likely, if that question comes to our mind, it's come to other people's minds. And we can generally find an answer if we seek it out, as well as it equips us for a time where somebody may present that question to us. We should be able to provide them with an answer. So I think it's interesting to think about this. As I was preparing for this message, I read that the largest sending agency of missionaries in the United States is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS, the Mormons. As of 2019, it was reported that the LDS has 67,000 full-time missionaries and 31,000 service missionaries worldwide. 
Whereas the Southern Baptist IMB, the, the um, International Mission Board, had a total of 3,654 total field personnel when last reported at the end of April of this year. So that's 98,000 Mormons versus the 3,700, a little less than 3,700 that's coming from the Southern Baptist uh, International Missions Board. Now, I, I say that just to draw out a point. Um, how the LDS is defining their missionaries, I, I don't really know. I mean, they could technically say that everybody who's a Mormon is a missionary because they, they go out and seek to. But at the same time, they are missionaries, just as much as the Southern Baptists and other uh, evangelicals should be considered missionaries as well. It's just a good figure to show that false teachers are leading the race. They're, they're doing what we should be doing, and that's not the way it should be. The Mormons are just one example of false teaching groups that are out there proselytizing lost people into a false gospel, and they are leading the race. Brothers and sisters, this should not be so. Those of us who know the truth should be eager to go and share it with others. This is true for me. This is true for you. This is for both the young and the old within this church. Everybody who knows truth should be eager to share it with other people. So how do we recognize false teachers? I think a, a helpful example is, is what, if it's accurate or not, I don't know. I think it would be. But the example of a bank teller. Bank tellers do not recognize counterfeit money by knowing all the different variables and nuances that make something counterfeit. They can recognize counterfeit by recognizing and knowing the real deal. Because they know the real thing so much, whenever they come across something that's counterfeit, they're able to identify it. The same is true for us whenever we think of false teachers. When we know our Bibles, when we know theology, we know God, we know ourselves the way he's revealed it through Scripture, we'll know when somebody is trying to sell us falsehood. We'll know when somebody is seeking to lead others astray through false teaching. That's why Jude uses the word sensuality, or in other translations, licentiousness in the end of verse 4. Webster's defines licentiousness as lacking legal or moral restraint, especially when it comes to disregard for sexual restraint. Uh, the original Greek word here is uh, aselagia, which translates licentiousness, filth, wantonness. And Jude uses it in a, as an adjective and in a, a verb form. This describes the lifestyle of the false teachers. False teachers, though they sought to proclaim what sounded true, their lifestyles gave them away. It told on them. You could recognize they were a counterfeit because their lifestyles did not line up with the truth that they sought to preach and teach. They were not worshiping in spirit and truth. They were worshiping, they were teaching, they were doing missions in a spirit, in their own spirit. It welled up out of them, therefore into their lifestyles, but it was not rooted in truth. It was not rooted in the gospel truth. Therefore, they were recognized as counterfeits. We who seek to speak in spirit and truth, to worship in spirit and truth, will do so rightly whenever it's centered on the word of God. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our lives should be an act of spiritual worship. And the way that our lives are lived out, the way we use our bodies, the way we carry ourselves is an act of worship and will, will, will tell on us about the truth that we seek to proclaim. Uh, due to time, I know I need to speed up. So summarizing uh, verses 5 through 16 in the book of Jude, Jude basically goes on to um, 
me find my place. Uh, to describe the qualities of the apostates, the false teachers, both the ones of old and the ones of new. Uh, just like we read in Ecclesiastes this morning, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. The false teachers that existed before the book of Jude, the false teachers that existed during the book of Jude, and the false teachers that exist now, they have nothing new. They have nothing new to offer. They're false teachers. There's nothing new under the sun. And that's essentially 5 through 16 summarizes that and helps us to identify. It parallels what Jim drew out for us, the disqualifications Israel succumbed to, these false teachers have succumbed to as well. So picking back up on the verses I want us to focus on and wrap up with 17 through 23, Focusing on verse 17, Jude says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude is reminding us that Jesus himself and the other apostles warned of these false teachers. That's why Jude picks up on the idea of the need to contend for the faith. False teachers are there. They're going to be there. They're always going to be there. Therefore, believers need to contend for the faith. We need to know truth. We need to stand for truth. Verses 18 and 19 they said to you, and the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. The devil didn't make them do it. It was their own sinful hard hearts. The same is true for anybody who remains unrepentant. When they're burning in hell, it's not going to be God to blame. It's not going to be the devil to blame. It's going to be ourselves to blame because we followed our own sinful passions. Every human being is born into sin and remains in sin unless they turn and hear the gospel call and repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. These phrases, building yourselves up, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, all parallel are all synonyms, synonymous to contending for the faith. We need to know God. We need to know our Bibles. I know I'm saying it a lot, but I want you to get it. We need to know theology so we know God, we know ourselves, so that way we can stand for the faith. We contend for the faith. We, we speak truth. And with that in mind, he goes on to say in verse 22, have mercy on some who are doubting. Mercy could be defined as not receiving what we deserve. God certainly showed mercy to us by sending Jesus to die and suffer the wrath that was reserved for us. We must show it to others, especially when it comes to teaching the truth, teaching them the Bible and how God has revealed himself through it. How long did it take you? How long were you a recipient of the mercy of God before you turned and you heard the truth? Some of you very well may still be receiving the mercy of God because you are still alive and breathing, though you have not turned and believed in the gospel call. Verse 23 really sums up, it's, a, it's almost a mission statement for missionaries. It says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. This pleads the case for missions. It's almost a purpose statement. This is what missionaries are called to do. We are called to snatch the others out of the fire. As I read that, it brought to mind the analogy that Jonathan Edwards used in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Some of you may be familiar with it, and yes, I am going to quote Jonathan Edwards. Uh, but I felt it was so appropriate thinking of missions. And I'm going to wrap us up with this, all right? So please, please pay attention. This is from Jonathan Edwards' sermon, a few excerpts. How dreadful is the state of those that are daily and hourly in danger of this great threat of infinite misery. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again, however moral and strict, sober and religious they may otherwise be. Oh, that you would consider it whether you be young or old. Consider the state that you're in if you are unbelieving, unrepentant. 
There is no reason to think that there are many in this congregation now hearing this discourse that will actually be the subjects of this very misery to all eternity. We know not who, I'm sorry, this old English, so it's kind of hard. We know not who they are or in what seats they sit or what thoughts they now have. It may be they are now at ease and hear all these things without much disturbance and are now flattering themselves that they are not the persons, promising themselves that they shall escape. If we knew that there was one person and but one and this whole congregation that was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing it would be to think of. If we knew who it was, what an awful sight would it be to see such a person. How might the rest of the congregation lift up a lamentable and bitter cry over him? But alas, instead of one, how many it is likely will remember this discourse in hell? And would it be a wonder if some that are now present should not be in hell in a very short time before this year is out? And it would be no wonder if some persons that now sit here in some seat of this meeting house in health and quiet and secure should be there before tomorrow morning. This is the plight of everyone that has not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of missions. This is the reason every true believer needs to study and know their Bibles and seek to proclaim the truth revealed in it, to know theology and to contend for the faith and to share it with every single person they possibly can. There are certainly people that everybody here knows that are lost. Are we taking the state that they are now in as serious as we should? What about those that we do not know personally? Of course, there are people all around the world in this state. Do we see the gravity of their situations? And are we willing to do whatever it takes to aid them in the work of leading them to Christ? Are we willing to engage in the sending and the going of missions? Are we willing to participate in missions? Are we willing to obey the gospel call to preach and teach the gospel? Nobody's exempt from it. So in conclusion, I'll reiterate my aforementioned summary. Missions is an act of worship, a means of leading others to worship the God who created them in his image. And therefore, worship and therefore missions, must be rooted in a proper heart attitude that flows from what God has revealed to us in Scripture. To rightly love God, to rightly love others, to honor God with our gifts, talents, and abilities, and avoid the disqualifications, to avoid giving in to falsehood, we must study God's Word and stand for the truth that is revealed in it, and to share it with every single person that God gives us the opportunity to. Missions must be done in spirit and truth. Let me close us by reading the last verses of Jude, verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God and Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would use your gospel message, the truth that has been sought to be uh, taught today, Lord, to turn unrepenting hearts to yourself, Lord and to quicken the hearts of those that are secure in you to share your gospel message with others, Lord, to recognize, as Jonathan Edwards so aptly illustrated, uh, the state of the plight that they're in, Lord. Let us not take it lightly, Lord. Please help us remember that you've equipped us with every gift, talent, and ability, everything necessary to fulfill this mission that you've called us to, Lord. I thank you that you're gracious, that you are merciful, that you will continue to be so. But let us not presume arrogance thinking that we have X amount of time ahead of us, Lord, when tomorrow 
even today could be our last day that we take our last breath, Lord. We thank you. Please help us to engage your word and to know the truth that you preach and teach in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. guys will stand up with us. Thank you, Stephen.